Volume 1, Chapter 11, Part 3 of A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria by François-Pierre Guillaume Guizot, Chapter 11, Part 3. It was on the 18th of September in the morning. All the flower of the French chivalry thronged around the king and his four sons. It is affirmed that the French army numbered more than 50,000 men. The forces of the Black Prince did not amount to 12,000, but the English had prudently entrenched themselves behind some hedges and underwood, in the midst of the vines, so they could only be approached by a narrow road lined with arches. At the moment, when, by the advice of Eustace of Ribamont, the French knights prepared to alight to make an attack, the Cardinal of Perigord arrived, begging the king to permit him to negotiate between the two armies. The English are but a handful compared with you. If you can capture them, and cause them to place themselves at your mercy without giving battle, this manner would be more honourable and profitable to you. The king consented thereto, and the cardinal promptly galloped towards the English army. Gallant son, he said to the black prince, if you had justly considered the power of the king of France, you would suffer me to arrange terms with him for you, if I could. Therefore the prince, who was then a young man, answered, my lord, saving my honour and that of my men, I am ready to listen to anything in reason. Thus the cardinal galloped throughout the day between the two armies. But no agreement could be made, for although the English willingly consented to surrender to King John all the towns and castles taken on their way, to conclude a truce of seven years and to release the prisoners, the French demanded that the Prince of Wales and a hundred of his knights should surrender before allowing the remainder of the army to pass, to which the English could not listen, and on Monday morning the French king angrily told the cardinal to return to Poitiers, or wherever he pleased, and never more to speak of treaty or agreement, for that he might give offence. Quickly going away, the cardinal proceeded to the English army. "'My gallant son,' he said to the prince, "'do as you are able. You must fight.' for I cannot discover any disposition for concord or peace in the King of France. And the prince answered, greatly irritated, That is the intention of us and ours, and may God help the right. The French army was divided into three great battle corps. The first was commanded by the marshals of France, the second by Charles, Duke of Normandy. King John was at the head of the third, and he had retained by his side his youngest son, Philip. The Prince of Wales had placed his little army with great care. It was imperative to fight or perish, for there were no provisions. My gallant lords, said the young man, if we are few against the might of our enemies, let us not be daunted, for virtue and victory do not belong to great numbers, but to whomsoever God chooses to send them. If it happens that the day be ours, we shall be the most honoured in the world, if we should die, I have still my father and two gallant brothers, and you good friends, 
who will avenge us. Thus I beg that you may today know how to fight well, for, if it please God and St. George, you will see in me a good knight. The French had wavered. A great number had remained on horseback against the advice of Ribamont. A good English knight, Sir James Audley, awaited them foremost in advance, having vowed to be the best combatant in the battle. The heavy cavalry and the warriors, covered with steel, entered the narrow path leading to their enemies. The arrows of the English archers began to whistle by. The brave knights looked around them. They saw no assailants, but they were wounded and their horses were falling. They were obliged to retreat, leaving the dead, the dying and the wounded horses, who encumbered the defile. The army corps of the marshals was disconcerted, and that of the Duke of Normandy was beginning to take alarm. The experienced eye of Sir John Chandos was not deceived in the matter. "'Ride forward, sire,' he said to the Prince of Wales, "'for the day is yours. Let us devote ourselves to your adversary, the King of France, for there lies the greater part of the day's work, and I well know that by reason of his valour he will not fly.' The Prince applied his spurs to his horse, and quitting his rustic rampart, he advanced into the open space where the King of France was fighting. A detachment of the archers attacked at the same time the troops of the Duke of Normandy, who took to flight almost without striking a blow. The English charged, St. George and Guyenne, Montreuil Saint-Denis, was the answer around King John, but the disorder was increasing. The Duke of Orléans had disappeared with the reserve forces. The king was not a man ever to be frightened by the things which he saw or heard said, but still remained a good knight and fought well. "'Dismount! Dismount!' he cried to all his followers, and he himself alighting from his horse, he marched along their ranks, battle-axe in hand, and there around him there was a great number of warriors, haughty and cruel, and many heavy blows were given and received. And the still youthful prince, Philip, was there, crying to his father, "'Sire, have a care on your right! "'Sire, have a care on your left!' and defended him as much as he was able. Meanwhile, on all sides the king was greeted with, "'Surrender, or you are a dead man!' He looked around him. "'To whom shall I surrender?' he asked aloud. "'Where is my cousin, the Prince of Wales? "'If I could see him, I would speak.' "'Sire,' said a knight, "'he is not here.' "'but surrender to me, I will conduct you to him.' "'Who are you?' asked the king. "'Denis de Morbec, a knight of Artois, "'but I serve the king of England, "'because I cannot live in the kingdom of France, "'and because I have there forfeited all my possessions.' "'The king tendered his glove to him. "'I surrender to you,' he said. "'The knight endeavoured to lead the king away from the crowd, "'but although he was tall and powerful,' Everybody crowded round him, saying, I have captured him, I have captured him, and the king could not advance, nor could his youngest son, Philip. The Earl of Warwick and Sir Reynold Cobham, who were seeking the king on behalf of the Prince of Wales, were obliged to deliver him from his enemies, and to conduct him courteously to the spot where Shandos had advised that the banner of England should be planted to reassemble the troops. "'It is time that your men should rejoin you,' he had said, "'for they are scattered and the day is yours. "'You must refresh yourself a little. 
for I see that you are much heated. The prince had removed his helmet when the King of France was brought forward, before whom he made a profound reverence, and received him as a king, well and wisely, and in the evening he waited upon him without ever consenting to be seated, notwithstanding any solicitation which the king made in this respect, and said that he was not yet sufficiently important to sit down at the table of so great a sovereign and so valiant a man, who had that day surpassed the ablest, and all deemed that the prince had spoken well. The towns and castles remained closed in Poitou and in Saintonge, but the French army was not rallied, and no attempt was made to deliver the king. The Prince of Wales hastened to Bordeaux in order to place in safety his illustrious prisoners and all the booty with which his army was loaded. The Duke of Normandy had been created regent by the States-General, and the Black Prince concluded a truce of two years with him. He spent the winter in Gascony. Then in the spring, April 1357, he set sail to conduct to England King John and his son Philip. Negotiations were in progress for the ransom of the king, and the legates of the Pope, the ordinary negotiators of the great treaties between sovereigns, followed the Prince of Wales and his prisoners to England. John entered London on the 24th of April upon a magnificent courser, richly caparisoned. The Prince of Wales was at his side upon a small black horse. King Edward had come forward to meet his illustrious captive, and all the court hastened to do him honour. King John consoled himself easily enough in his captivity. Already for six years past, Edward had been in treaty with the Scottish Parliament for the ransom of King David Bruce. Twice the latter had been enabled to visit his kingdom, in order to induce his subjects to redeem him. But Scotland was poor, and the demands of Edward were exorbitant. It was not until the month of October 1357 that the treaty was at length concluded, and that David was enabled to return to his kingdom after an imprisonment of eleven years. But his subjects soon perceived the influence which his long sojourn in England had exercised over their weak sovereign. When Queen Jane died without issue in 1362, David proposed to the Scottish Parliament to select as his heir Lionel, the third son of the King of England, to the exclusion of his nephew, the Stuart of Scotland. The indignation of the Scottish Parliament did not put an end to the project. Some delay in the payment of the ransom furnished an excuse to King Edward, and, until the death of King David, in 1371, the intrigues of the English continued to agitate Scotland. His nephew succeeded him without opposition, and assumed the title of Robert II. While Scottish affairs were occupying Edward III, the treaty with France still remained pending. The conditions required by the English were so harsh that King John, although a prisoner, hesitated to accept them. Besides an enormous sum for the ransom of the king, Edward claimed to retain all his conquests in France and to secure all the possessions formerly belonging to his family, not as an appanage or fief, but as a property. While the negotiations were being prolonged, 
the condition of France became daily more critical. The evil genius of the royal family, Charles the Bad, King of Navarre, had escaped from the prison where, for a long time, he had been confined. He had allied himself to the citizens of Paris, who wished to exert a certain amount of influence in their affairs, a power which was contested by the Dauphin and his council. The population of Paris, incited by their chiefs, soon escaped from the authority of the latter, who found themselves drawn along irresistibly with the current. Riot succeeded riot. Two of the advisers of the Dauphin were slain under his eyes on the 22nd of February, 1358, and his chancellor was compelled to fly. The contagion spread throughout the whole of France. As Paris had had its melotins, workmen armed with mallets, France in general had its jacquerie, an insurrection of the serfs, who were ironically called Jacques Bonhomme. Everywhere fearful massacres took place, and the Dauphin, compelled to arm against the peasants of his kingdom, had no leisure to think of the demands of King Edward. The insurrection was scarcely at an end when King John accepted the proposals of the King of England. But as soon as the conditions of the treaty were known in France, the States-General rejected them with indignation. The dismemberment of the country was impossible. Peace and the liberty of the King were too dearly bought at this price. King Edward knew the proud obstinacy of the English Parliament. He was indignant, however, to find a similar resistance from the French States-General, and complaining of perfidy, he entered France on the 28th of October, 1359. He had traversed Picardy, Artois and Cambrésis, consigning everything to fire and sword, when he arrived before Reims, where he proposed to be crowned King of France. In vain did he besiege that town during seven weeks. The archbishop and the citizens did not suffer themselves to be intimidated by the fate of Calais, and defended the place so valiantly that Edward was compelled to retire. He entered Burgundy, but the Duke Philip purchased his withdrawal with a large sum of money and a promise of neutrality. The King of England took the road to Paris. His army had suffered greatly during the winter. The month of March had been rough, and the negotiations which had been opened during the festival of Easter, not having brought about any result, Edward was compelled to retire. The Dauphin had not responded to his challenge, and the English army, unfit to attack the capital, fell back towards Brittany, after having burnt the suburbs of Paris. The road was strewn with the bodies of men and horses, succumbing to fatigue and misery. At length, in the neighbourhood of Chartres, a fearful storm surprised the English in the open plain. The son of the Earl of Warwick was killed by a thunderbolt beside the king. Struck by this terrible warning, Edward leapt from his horse and vowed to God and Our Lady of Chartres no longer to reject the proposals for peace, provided that they should be consistent with his honour. And conferences were opened a few days afterwards at Bretigny, a small village where Edward halted. Peace was at length concluded on the 8th of May, 1360. The King of England renounced his pretensions to the Kingdom of France and restored all his conquests, with the exception of Calais and Guyenne. 
King John conceded to him absolutely, for himself and his heirs in perpetuity, Guyenne, Poitou, Saint-Ange, Agenois, Limousin, Perigord, and the county of Ponceur. A ransom of three millions of golden crowns was to be paid within six years for the release of the king. Twenty-five French barons, forty-two burgesses, and sixteen of the most important prisoners captured at Poitiers were to serve as hostages for the fulfilment of the treaty. These conditions, harsh as they yet remained, were so much better than the first proposals of King Edward, that after much intriguing and hesitation, they were at length solemnly ratified by the two sovereigns at Calais on the 24th of October 1360, with this strange clause, that the definitive renunciations by the monarchs of the possessions which they ceded should not take place until the festival of the Assumption in the following year. On the morrow, the 25th of October, King John was restored to liberty and King Edward embarked for England. The festival of the Assumption had passed by, as well as many other holidays, but the conditions of the Treaty of Bretigny were not yet fulfilled. The financial distress of France had not admitted of raising the sums promised for the ransom. The land was ravaged by the free bands, formerly in the pay of the belligerents, but who, having no employment since the peace, had lived by plunder and rapine. They proceeded from province to province, wherever there were still remained any resources, and they defeated John of Bourbon, who had been dispatched against them by the Dauphin. The States-General murmured at the conditions of the treaty. King John saw nothing in his kingdom but oppression and misery. He could not fulfil his engagements, and as a crowning disgrace, one of his hostages, his own son, the Duke of Anjou, having been brought to Calais with the other Knights of the Lily, a designation applied to his brother, the Duke of Berry, his uncle, the Duke of Orléans, and his cousin, the Duke of Bourbon, shamelessly broke his word by flying from prison to repair to Paris. King John was weary of the struggle and wounded in his pride and his loyalty. Perchance also he remembered the rejoicings which had been instituted in his honour in London. So he announced that he was about to return to England. Were honour banished from the whole earth, he proudly said, it would be found again in the heart of a king. He arrived in London at the beginning of the year 1364, but before being able to resume negotiations, he fell ill and died on the 8th of April. His body was brought back to France with all royal magnificence, and the Dauphin became king under the title of Charles V. While the perplexities of the government in France had hindered the consolidation of peace, the Prince of Wales had been married, on the 10th of October 1361, to the woman whom he had loved all his lifetime, his cousin Joan, daughter of Edmund, Earl of Kent. She had already been twice married, and her second husband, Lord Holland, had recently died. Happy at length, the Black Prince established himself with his wife in Aquitaine, and held at Bordeaux a magnificent court, the school for all good chivalry, while he laboured to restore order in these provinces, so long desolated by war. King Charles V had found means of ridding himself of the free companies, 
the King of Castile, Peter the Fourth, had deserved his surname of the Cruel for a series of crimes which had exasperated the people. His brother, Henry of Transtamer, exiled by him and burning with a desire to avenge his mother and all his relatives assassinated by the tyrant, had taken refuge in France, asking the assistance of King Charles V. The latter offered the services of the free companies. The good knight Bertrand du Guesclin, already famous among the most illustrious warriors of his time, concluded a treaty with the chiefs of the different bands, and, placing himself at their head, crossed the Pyrenees under the orders of Henry of Transtamar, who was soon placed upon the throne of Castile, almost without striking a blow. In vain did Peter the Cruel call to his aid all his vassals. They were too happy to see themselves delivered from his yoke, and when the tyrant was compelled to take to flight, he took refuge at Bordeaux, begging the assistance of the Prince of Wales. Passion blinds the most clear-sighted men. The noble character of the Black Prince had nothing in common with the savage ferocity and calculating perfidy of Peter the Cruel, but the Prince thought this king ill-used by his brother and his subjects. France had embraced the cause of Henry of Transtamar, and England thought herself constrained to support his rival. He had brought with him his two daughters, who remained at the court of Bordeaux, where they were married, a few years later, to two sons of King Edward, the Duke of Lancaster and the Earl of Cambridge. The first rumour of the intentions of the Black Prince caused a secession from the army of Du Guesclin of some of his best bands. Sir John Calvary and Sir Robert Knowles, with 12,000 men, immediately abandoned Henry of Transtamar and proceeded into Guienne, assembling under the banner of their legitimate chief. The King of Navarre delivered up the passage through the Pyrenees, and in the month of February 1367, in spite of cold, snow, and scarcity of provisions in a poor country, 30,000 men crossed the defiles of the mountains under the command of the Prince of Wales and Peter the Cruel. And on the 3rd of April a battle was fought between the two pretenders, upon the plain of Navarrete. The combat was fierce. A portion of the Spaniards had given way, but Henry of Transtamar, supported by Du Gesselin, resolutely defended himself. At length the latter was made a prisoner, and the rout was complete. Don Henry fled and took refuge in Aragon. Six thousand men remained upon the field of battle, and two thousand prisoners were in the hands of Peter the Cruel. He was preparing to slaughter them, when the Prince of Wales demanded mercy for them, and the King did not dare to refuse it. But he had no intention of fulfilling the promises which he had made at Bordeaux. From his camp at Valladolid, the Prince repeatedly sent to Peter the Cruel, demanding the money which he had undertaken to pay for the expenses of the war. No answer, no visit from the King, no provisions while the English army was decimated by sickness, by the climate, and by want. The prince himself was suffering from a fever. Weary of waiting, and convinced of the perfidy of his ally, he raised his camp on the 26th of June, and returned to Guienne. Peter the Cruel had momentarily regained his throne, but the treasury of England was empty. 
the health of the Black Prince was forever destroyed, his character embittered by suffering and deceptions, and the barons of Aquitaine were beginning to murmur and to turn unwillingly towards France. Charles V deserved his title of the Wise, prudent and foreseeing, but too weak in body to have any taste for warfare, he directed the affairs of the kingdom from his seat, with a firm moderation to which the French, like their enemies, had not been accustomed under his predecessors. When the Poitevins presented themselves before Charles V as the liege lord, to complain of the excessive taxes imposed by the Black Prince, he temporised, gave vague answers, and retained the complainants at Paris, while his brother, the Duke of Anjou, governor of Languedoc, was fostering the discontent in the provinces of the south belonging to the English. The Spanish ally of the Black Prince had recently received the reward of all his crimes. Scarcely had the English retired when Don Henry had again taken the field, and for the second time he had dethroned his brother. As he was besieging him in a fortified castle, they met in the tent of a French knight. Peter immediately seized his brother by the throat and threw him to the ground. Henry drew his dagger, and Peter, stabbed to the heart, died immediately. An offensive and defensive alliance had recently been concluded between France and Spain, 20th of November, 1368, and King Charles V, publicly taking his course, summoned Edward, Prince of Aquitaine, to appear at Paris before his peers, there to answer the complaints of his vassals. Since the Treaty of Bretigny, King Edward and his son had no longer recognised the superiority of France. "'I will go,' said the Black Prince, but with sixty thousand lances." His father was better aware of the difficulty of the undertaking. He made moderate proposals to Charles V, simply claiming the sovereignty of Aquitaine. But Charles V, seeing the English Parliament wearied of the wars, King Edward aged and tired, and the Black Prince ill, maintained his pretension, and the French troops entered into Poitou, Guienne and Limousin, the discontented and capricious inhabitants almost always lent their support to the French. King Edward sent his second son, the Duke of Lancaster, with considerable reinforcements to the assistance of the Black Prince, but while he was overrunning the northern provinces. King Charles, not permitting any important engagement to take place, the conquests of the French extended in the south, and the Prince of Wales, dangerously ill, found himself compelled to take the field upon a litter. The Dukes of Anjou and Berry did not await him. They had left garrisons in the towns, but had retired when the Prince advanced against Limoges. He had formally lavished his favours upon that town, which the Bishop had surrendered to the French, and he had sworn, by the soul of his father, not to move thence, nor do anything until he should recapture it. The siege progressed slowly, the citizens bravely supporting the garrison, for they feared the vengeance of the prince. The latter conducted the military operations with a savage fury which he had never before manifested. At length, at the end of a month, a large mine opened a breach in the walls of the town. The besiegers sprang inside, and the massacre began. Women, children, and old men fell upon their knees, crying, Mercy! 
Such poor folks could not have been concerned in defending the town, but none received quarter. The knights and men-at-arms of the garrison still defended themselves heroically in the streets. Three of them planted themselves against a wall and made such good use of their swords that the Prince of Wales, while passing by in his litter, was struck with admiration and received them as prisoners to be ransomed. The humble people, who were really martyrs, says Foisson, were all dead. The town was fired and the Prince of Wales had retired. He had exhausted his strength, and in the hope of regaining his health under his native sky, set out for England, leaving to his brother, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, the care of prosecuting the war. The military career of the Black Prince was ended. Six years of illness and languor were to bring to its close this life so brilliantly begun, but unhappily sullied by a last act of cruelty, more consistent with the general morals of the time than with the character hitherto displayed by the son of King Edward. The Duke of Lancaster had recently married Constance, the eldest daughter of Peter the Cruel, and, upon this ground, he aspired to the crown of Castile, an imprudent pretension which strengthened the union of the King, Don Henry, with France. The Earl of Pembroke was bringing reinforcements to the Duke in June 1372, when a Spanish fleet stationed between La Rochelle and the Isle of Ré barred the passage. An engagement took place, and the English were completely beaten, their vessels being either captured or scuttled. This disaster was an unmistakable blow to King Edward and to the English nation, which was beginning to look upon the sea as its legitimate empire. The successes of King Charles V were increasing. He had placed Bertrand du Guesclin at the head of his armies and had made him constable of France, but the remembrance of Crecy and Poictiers were always before his eyes. He did not permit any pitched battles to be fought. From siege to siege, from skirmish to skirmish, Du Guesclin was still marching forward, sometimes surprising the enemy, passing through their ranks, as it is said in his memoirs, by a stratagem which consisted in striking with the point and with the edge of the sword, but when the English presented themselves in a body, the constable would fall back upon the fortresses and allow a passage to the enemy, who overran the country, but could not surround either the large towns or fortified castles. Never has King fought so little and given so much trouble, said Edward angrily, for his French possessions were diminishing day by day. Bordeaux and Bayonne, with a narrow piece of territory, alone remained in his hands in the south, and Calais only in the north. So, if the faithful ally of England, the young Count of Montfort, was everywhere recognised in Brittany since the death of Charles of Blois, in 1364, his authority was too well contested by Oliver de Clisson to allow of supporting English interests beyond his duchy. John of Gaunt returned to England, and once more the legates of the Pope playing the part of peacemakers, a truce of one year was concluded at Bruges in 1374, to be prolonged almost until the death of King Edward. So many reverses after so much glory had undermined in England the popularity of the King. The finances of the country were in default. 
every resource had been exhausted to support a war which had borne so little fruit. Complaints, which people did not dare to address to the king, reached his ministers and even his son, the Duke of Lancaster, who had gradually secured the power, in consequence of the weakness of his father and the illness of the Prince of Wales. The latter remained the idol of the nation, and, either through jealousy of his brother, or through dissatisfaction at the state of affairs, he lent his support to the opposition. The Parliament of 1376, long known under the title of The Good Parliament, addressed to the King a remonstrance concerning the waste of the public money and demanded the dismissal of several of the ministers. Lord Latimer and Lord Neville were deprived of all their offices, but the object of the public hatred and mistrust was especially a woman named Alice Perez, formerly a lady of the bedchamber to Queen Philippa, but who, since the death of the latter, had acquired such an influence over King Edward that he had presented her with the jewels of his wife, and frequently permitted her to dispense at her pleasure the favours of the crown. The commons publicly demanded that she should be banished from the kingdom. Amidst this work of reform, the Parliament suddenly lost its firmest support. The Black Prince died on the 8th of June, 1376. For a long time he had been ailing, and unable to assume in the government of his country the position which by right belonged to him. But the nation had always reckoned upon his wisdom and justice, no less than on his brilliant valour. A prosperous and happy reign had been hoped for, and the grief was general and protracted. The good fortune of England seemed bound up in his person, says the chronicler Walsingham. It had flourished in his health, it languished in his illness, and died at his death. In him expired all the hopes of the English, for during his lifetime neither an invasion of the enemy nor an encounter in battle had been feared. He was interred with great pomp in Canterbury Cathedral, where he had formerly erected a chapel in memory of his marriage. At the especial request of Parliament, his eldest son Richard was thereupon declared heir to the throne. Fears were entertained concerning the pretensions of the Duke of Lancaster, who had resumed all his authority. Sir Peter Delamere, who had impeached the ministers in the name of Parliament, was arrested. The Bishop of Winchester, William of Wickham, formerly at the head of the opposition, was divested of his revenues. A Parliament favourable to John of Gaunt was convoked. It proposed the recall of Alice Perez, the rehabilitation of Lord Latimer, and other measures so unpopular that the palace of the Duke was assailed by the citizens of London, and his friend Lord Percy, a Marshal of England, was pursued by the mob, so that the Prince was obliged to throw himself into a small boat with Percy and take refuge at Kennington, in the castle inhabited by the young Prince Richard and his mother. All the remonstrances of the Bishop of London scarcely succeeded in calming the disturbance. The arms of the Duke of Lancaster, at the gate of his palace, were inverted by the people as the escutcheon of a traitor. When the Duke returned shortly afterwards to London, all the magistrates of the city were dismissed and replaced by his creatures. On the occasion of the fiftieth anniversary of the reign of Edward III, 
a general amnesty was proclaimed. The Bishop of Winchester alone was excluded from it. It was the last public act of King Edward. This body so active and robust, this spirit so bold, this will so firm, had nevertheless undergone the effects of premature old age. The ministers were ranging themselves beside the Duke of Lancaster. The opposition was grouped around the young Prince Richard and the Princess of Wales. The old king was dying alone with Alice Perez. It is even said that she deserted him in his agony, after having taken the royal ring from him. The king lay in this isolation, the servants having dispersed in the manner of Sheen to plunder at their leisure. A monk entered, crucifix in hand. He approached the unhappy monarch, praying beside him, and supporting his expiring head until the last sigh. Thus died, on the 21st of June, 1377, the great Edward III, who had at one time appeared destined to unite upon his head the two crowns of France and England. He died alone in the 65th year of his age, leaving to his grandson, a child, instead of the whole of Aquitaine, which he had received from his father, a few towns only upon that soil of France of which he claimed possession. The blood of the two nations had flowed during more than thirty years, and the struggle was as yet only at its beginning. End of chapter 11, part 3